0: What we know over time is that starting around age 40, you will gain about five pounds of fat and lose about five pounds of muscle every decade, unless you're specifically doing something about it, which is what I want our listeners to do. Take this on. Don't just be there silently like a victim, letting this passively happen. Grab those reins and let's get these hormones to be the wind at your back again so that you can really accomplish your mission in this world.
1: Hey there's Michelle and welcome back to the show. I am thrilled you are tuning in today. I have such a great guest who is going to help you understand your hormones and how what you eat actually impacts how they are regulated in your body so that you can achieve ultimate health. Joining us today is Dr. Sarah Gottfried, who is a board certified physician, researcher, educator, and New York Times bestselling author. She graduated from Harvard Medical School and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and for the past 25 years has seen more than 25,000 patients. Her work is centered around getting to the root cause of people's health so that they can feel their best. Now, I have followed Dr. Gottfried's work for many years. I've purchased her books. And I've just been so impressed by the level of information that she shares in the way that she shows up in the world, because in addition to helping women get empowered around their health, she really walks her talk. And I found in this interview, as somebody who I've admired for so long, was so very present and so intentional about wanting to bring her best to us to really educate us around our health. And I'm very grateful to have had that experience and to be sharing it with you. Her most recent book is called Women, Food, and Hormones, A Four-Week Plan to Achieve Hormonal Balance, lose weight, and feel like yourself again. And that is what we are talking about today. I hope that you will share this interview with all of your female friends. We all need to get empowered around our health and the conversations that we are having with our physicians about our well-being. As always, this is for informational purposes and not intended to be medical advice. And I'm so thrilled to be sharing today's conversation with you. So let's get into the show. Here we go. Welcome, Dr. Gottfried. I am so excited that you are on the show today. Hey,
0: Michelle, so happy to be with you.
1: Well, I've been following your work for, for really since your first book came out, The Hormone Cure, which I have right here, Mm -hmm. and then moved on to Younger, which absolutely devoured. And then I gifted this to so many people. And then it was very funny because I went to my general practitioner feeling kind of armed with better questions and more in control of my health. And what was funny about it is that she had just read your book and sent it to 20 people.
0: Oh, I so appreciate that. Oh my yes, gosh. That's she, great to hear.
1: Yes. And we bonded because of that. And the fact that she was reading your work created it. It was interesting. Like we, the last visit I had, she hugged me. I gave her a gift for, you know, during this time of COVID and we've, you know, you don't see your general practitioner often, but we, your work created a rapport between us. It was interesting.
0: I love that. I mean, it's. You know, to me, that's, that's not so much about me. That's about a shared understanding, especially about what women are up against and what we can do about it, like what those solutions are. Completely. And then
1: this book, Woman, Food, and Hormones, a four-week plan to achieve hormonal balance, lose weight, and feel like yourself again. Again, what I love about your books is that I know I'm going to get the science, I'm going to get the data and the research, but I'm going to get the stories, the case studies. And then you go, "Oh, yeah, I've experienced that." And then, as a woman, you don't feel so alone in something, and you go, "Oh, I feel validated." So when I talk to my doctor about this, or they're like, "Oh, your blood work is fine or something, you you go, "Oh, wait, no, I'm actually in, I'm entitled Yes, to be acknowledged for this, but we you know, we sit there. If you think about it, we're like not dressed. we're in the robes often <laughs> for a physical or something. <laughs> and you feel like a little kid. And you know, they have the information and you feel disempowered, but your work empowers us
0: women in those conversations. And I thank you yeah. for that. Well, thank you so much for um talking about that because I, you know, I, I've been talking recently quite a bit about the ways that once we're done with having kids and you're just telling me that your daughter is turning 13. Um you know, once we're finished with having kids, there's a way that women start to disappear in the medical system. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a serious problem because, you know, there's, there's many examples of this. If you mm-hmm. have, if you feel like your hormones are out of whack, sometimes you go to the doctor. If you're trying to get pregnant and you're having trouble, they'll run every hormone test. They'll look at testosterone, thyroid, cortisol, insulin, the whole gamut. Yes. But if you're not trying to get pregnant, sometimes you get told, oh, you're just getting older <laughs> or hormones fluctuate too much. It's not worth measuring them. And so that, that sets us up for this feeling, you know, as we're shivering in those pathetic little gowns, it sets us up for feeling like we're disappearing, that we're yeah. less worthy as we get older, especially after 35 or 40. Yeah, And we got to change that conversation because women stepping into their power in their thirties, forties, fifties, and beyond, like that's what's going to really change this world and make it a better place. So, um, I really appreciate that. I think it's not just health; it's much broader than health. And this type of work, where you're validated, you're heard, you're not um, either intentionally or unintentionally ignored or dismissed. Yeah, you're not gaslit. That's what we need to bring to the table. We yeah. need to bring our value, in some ways, just validate our own symptoms, but also to support each other in changing the standard, changing this patriarchal standard that we have in healthcare. Yeah. It's so interesting. And I, and I
1: actually also have compassion for the physicians too who get their 10 minutes with the patient. So I know that. And I think you talk about it in the book. If they can't write you a prescription for something, it's like, well, I've done my best today. Good luck, you know, and not in a mean way. It's just, they've got to move on to the next patient, right? And the medicine that you um, practice, I'd love it if you would actually explain, because you're traditionally trained, you went to Harvard Medical School, but then you moved into evidence-based, integrative, functional, and precision medicine. Can you explain what that is? Because I think that'll create a foundation for our conversation today. I've not actually heard that before.
0: Of course, So I would say I've always practiced integrative medicine. So even at Harvard Medical School, I took additional courses in how to weave together some of these ancient healing modalities, such as traditional Chinese medicine, uh, even some of the native medicine, as well Mm -hmm. as Ayurveda, into the way that I take care of patients. Because I think that in some ways, the traditional model is so good for when you have a broken bone or a case of pneumonia, but not so good for some of these chronic conditions that so many of us face, whether you're male or female. And I see both men and women. So it started out with integrative medicine. And then I realized when I was going through my residency training in San Francisco at UCSF that there was still a missing piece. And that was a level of detail looking at function like really looking at structure and function in the body. And I saw this, especially as I was going through initially obstetrics and gynecology uh, residency. And then later I uh, did a lot of advanced training in functional medicine, as well as precision medicine. What I saw was that there were still so many gaps, whether that's autoimmune disease, multiple sclerosis, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, or even just, you know, kind of, the basic depression or anxiety, yeah. so there's a way that we've got to look at all these systems of the body. We've got to look at the root cause rather than masking symptoms, and I would say that's what functional medicine does. So it helps us with the systems approach to the body. Yeah. We don't, you know, say. Oh, you've got gas and bloating. Why don't you see the gastroenterologist? Oh, you have anxiety. Why don't you run off to the psychiatrist? Right. You know, sometimes those referrals are necessary, Yes. but we need to be thinking across these silos. We need to Mm de-siloize, which is what functional medicine does. And then the third piece is precision medicine. Yes. The type of work that I do, because you can probably tell already I'm a total nerd I really like to go deep on the individual because medicine has been practiced for hundreds of years in a way that it's the medicine of the average. So we look at things like, you know, how does this antidepressant like Selexa work for patients with depression? And we know that we have to treat a lot of patients, sometimes up to nine, 10 before a single person improves with that one medication. Wow. And so that is medicine of the average rather than medicine of the individual. How do we optimize the individual? And that's what precision medicine gives us. It allows us to go deep with looking at what's going on with you, Michelle, over time, you know, what's happening with your cardiometabolic factors, things like your risk of heart disease, your risk of having issues with your glucose or insulin, which I talk about a lot in the new book. Yes looking at other hormones, like your sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, you know, those are made in both men and women, but really understanding how personally could you be your best self and bring that to the world. So that's the work of precision medicine. It was initially brought to bear in oncology Hmm. where we really need, you know, for a patient with cancer, you know, if you have, Under patients with breast cancer, they're very different. The type of cancer that they have, the root cause of their cancer, their genetics, how that's interacting with the environment. So precision medicine, initially in oncology, would help us get very precise about the treatment. Hmm. But now we can take that much more broadly. And I can do it with my MBA players. I can do it with my female executives who tend to have cortisol issues and, you know, challenges right around perimenopause and menopause. Yes. Uh, yes.
1: Amen. <laughs> yes. Turn um, 50 this year. Yes. yes.
0: Yes. So, you know, that, that's what I do. I do precision medicine. And then another tool in our toolkit is the n of one experiment, which I talk a lot about in the book, but that's yeah. where we take you, Michelle, and we've got an intervention. So it might be the way that you're eating, it might be you know some change to your your food plan, it might be a supplement, it might be you know something to do with your sleep or your exercise regime, and that allows us to really see for you whether that intervention is going to work. Yeah, yeah, bio
1: individuality, right? What works for totally. one does not work for everyone. Totally. Um, yeah, I love the way you practice, and I pray that it's the model that becomes what's the norm, but I think we're a long ways out. I mean, I don't, I want to get into the book, but do you think there's hope of (laughs) this will be the way? (laughs) I mean, you're, I feel like you're ahead of the time. You're ahead of the curve here, right? I mean, I don't know many people practicing the way you do. I think most of us are in the traditional model where we get the 10 minutes and we're getting the referral, like you said, to the different practitioners. And then we're sort of on our own then to just navigate that.
0: I would say healthcare is changing. It's, you know, I'm an eternal optimist. So I, I feel like uh, there's a reason to have hope because many of us already know that healthcare has failed us for one reason or another. You know, for yeah. me, it was when I was 35 and I had PMS and I didn't want to have sex with my husband and I couldn't lose the baby weight and I got offered an antidepressant and a birth control pill. And that was exactly the wrong thing. And I was told to exercise more and eat less. So that was kind of my moment where I realized we need a different way. So you're right. There aren't a lot of folks who do what I do, but there's some reasons for hope. So here's the first reason. I'm part of the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences at Thomas Jefferson University. I've got a very forward-minded, progressive, Chair of the department, Dr. Daniel Monti. We've got this incredible CEO that's the head of uh, Jefferson Health and Thomas Jefferson University, uh, Steve Clasco. So there's a lot of folks who are helping us lead the charge. Yeah. But, you know, after 25 years of doing this, I would also say the change is slow, like to change this ship. Yeah. is um it's going to take a lot of us and yes. it takes these kind of conversations it takes you know realizing the failure of the existing system and then coming up with the alternative and then really getting support around that so that it's not just top down you know these CEOs around the country changing things but it's also bottom up so our listeners our viewers who are saying hell yes, I want to change this too. Like yes. I'm not satisfied with the 10 minute appointment with, with the doctor with one hand on the door. I agree with you. Like <laughs> right. I, I don't blame that doctor. I trained right along with them. Yeah. But I can also tell you there's some subtle ways that we're taught as physicians to you know jam as much into that 10 minutes and then head on to the next one. Yeah. And it's not incentivized the way that it needs to be. So there's a lot that needs to change But I just want to say this is a rallying call for the people who are listening. If you get nothing else out of this, like help us change this conversation Mm. and demand better in terms of people listening to you, validating the concerns that you have, looking for the root cause, looking at multiple data streams, not just your fasting glucose once a year, but what's going on with your sleep? What's happening with your wearables? Maybe you've got a continuous glucose monitor. Let's look at these dense data sets to really figure out, okay, what is health for you yeah. as an individual? And how do we optimize it over time? Yeah. And that's why I
1: so appreciate your books because they do educate. Like you said, you, you're you a nerd. <laughs> so it goes deep into no the question. science and yeah. I love that. So anyone who wants that, it's there. Um, and then, like I said, it helped me even have a better conversation with my doctor where we we bonded over your book. Let's get into your awesome book, hormones. You tell us that we need to start learning how to speak the language of hormones. Um, I think most of us know we have them, but we don't really know what they do exactly. We just know that a certain age, like I said, I turned 50. A lot of my listeners are somewhere between like 35 and 65. So different, you know, transitions, whether it's perimenopause or having just having had children or whatever it is to like me now going to my doctor and feeling not as informed as I would like to be other than, you know, I've been reading this and asking her, you know, can you check my female hormone pa- panel? She's like, well, we don't really need to do it. I go, well, am I going through menopause? Am, am I starting it? She goes, well, we would need to run the blood work to know. I'm like, my insurance covers it. Let's do it. I love, right. I love blood work. <laughs> why not? <laughs> That's why I was like, maybe, and maybe some people don't, I don't know why I don't they, like you said, they don't tend to just automatically like offer the blood work at once you're past childbearing age or whatever. Um, but to help educate us, what really, what are our hormones? Like, how do, how do they help all the, you know, our bodies do what they, (laughs) what they do?
0: Hormones drive what you're interested in. You know, they, they do so much in the body. I think of them like text messages on your phone. Hmm. So you get, You get a message, maybe it comes from the brain, hypothalamus or the pituitary. It goes to another gland in the body, such as the adrenal glands that sit on top of your kidneys. There are these cute little, you know, they're like the eraser on a pencil, old-fashioned pencils. Or it goes to your thyroid to say, dude, let's pick it up here. Like things Mm -hmm. are slowing down. I'm more constipated. My hair is falling out. I don't have the energy I used to. Or it goes to your ovaries in women to talk to, you know, uh, how many ripe eggs do you have left? And depending on that, what your progesterone levels are, your levels of estrogen, it goes to the testes in men. So I think of it as this really important network. Hmm. And the more that we're aware of how this network is working, the more that we're reading those text messages, the better that your mood is, it improves energy, it helps you when hormones are in balance to have the best metabolic health. And that distinction is really important. You know, so many of us think about the number on the bathroom scale. And in many ways, I care less about that. I know it's important to many of my patients. My heart sort of sinks a little every time I read it on an intake form, because we're under so much pressure from mainstream culture to be thinner to take up less space on this planet. And I totally disagree with that. Yeah. It's not about female obedience. It's about having the best metabolism going forward, especially in the second half of life. But that's true in your thirties, it's true in your forties, it's true in your twenties. And um, metabolism is mostly controlled by hormones, mood, the risk of anxiety. A lot of that is controlled by hormones. There's other factors too. The way I think of this system is not that it's just endocrinology or the study of endocrine glands. It is this entire control system that goes from the brain to these glands that we've mentioned already the adrenals, thyroid, gonads, but also to the gut. So the gut plays this critical role in helping to balance hormones, especially cortisol, estrogen. Uh, testosterone. So depending on whether you have more of those, uh, what a friend of mine calls the Homer Simpson type of bacteria versus the more benevolent type of bacteria, it can either tip the scale in the direction of hormonal balance or hormonal imbalance. And the list of symptoms associated with hormone imbalance are long, yeah. but it relates to many of these things, you know, anxiety, depression, um, feeling like you're a stress case, like I did in my thirties. Uh, it relates to keeping the hair on your head, uh, keeping other rogue cares away from your breasts and your chin and your places that you don't want to have row cares. and also your, your metabolic health. So that, I, you know, the hormones that really manage metabolic health include insulin, which determines whether you store fat or burn fat. It's what drives glucose inside of your cells, kind of like a bouncer at a club. And if insulin's not working well, you will store fat no matter what. And that was certainly my story uh, when I was in my thirties. And so I had to figure out how to wrangle some of these metabolic hormones, not just insulin, but cortisol, the main stress hormone, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, growth hormone, the list goes on. There's dozens of metabolic hormones.
1: Well, it's interesting because you, we're going to obviously talk about how you've come up with the Gottfried protocol and how food impacts our hormones. But it, you know, when you list, and even in the book, you can take the quiz. I think I have, was it low? Um, <laughs> uh, what was it? I'm like, oh, I checked a lot of boxes off of one of these. Um, I'll find it in a second. But what is it the food that's going to drive your hormones or is it that stress kicks them off? Like what comes, you know, which comes first, if that makes sense.
0: Good question. So sometimes it's the food that gets out of whack first. Yes. Because when it comes to insulin, as an example, since it's serving as this bouncer, kind of like at a club, determining whether glucose should be taken up by the cell or not. What happens is that for people who eat in a certain way, and this was my story when I was in my thirties, I ate too many carbs. I ate too many carbs for most of my life because they taste good. They they (laughs) taste delicious. And, and I, you know, I'm someone who grew up with some childhood trauma. Um, you know, my parents got divorced when I was young. I had uh, an adverse childhood experience score that was elevated, and I learned to eat to change my emotional state mm. so when you eat more carbs, it raises your serotonin, it makes you feel good yeah, and it also can affect some of these downstream consequences, especially if you combine that with a high level of stress so I had some food issues I think so many women live along the spectrum of disordered eating. Yeah. In my case, it was restriction starting when I was about 15, but also overeating carbs. My favorite was chocolate chip cookie dough when I was younger. And that then led to some bulimia through my medical training in my 20s. And then finally, some beautiful healing that occurred um, that I've written about before in some previous books, but that didn't happen until my 30s and 40s. So, overeating carbs can really affect insulin levels. Eating more processed foods is associated with disrupting insulin. We know that eating out too much. So, you know, during the pandemic, I think about this a lot. We know that the more that you eat out at restaurants or takeout, higher your risk of problems with insulin, greater risk of type 2 diabetes. Mm. You got to make your home, your kitchen, The best restaurant around that's good for insulin. It's good for testosterone. And so food plays a key role. One of the best diets for getting your insulin right in that Goldilocks position where it's not too low, not too high is 100% plant-based. And Hmm. so a lot of people do well eating 100% plant-based. There's a ton of evidence showing that this helps with managing glucose, managing metabolic health. I happen to have some genetics that make me overeat when I'm 100% plant-based. Yes. So for me, it doesn't work because I'm like a bottomless pit and very hard to satisfy. But if I do more of a, a clean ketogenic program, where I've got detoxification in place, which is the first pillar of this program. I've got nutritional ketosis, especially emphasizing the plant-based fats like avocados, olives, oils from them. Um, If I do that together with intermittent fasting, that allows me to produce ketones, to get into ketosis. Mm. And the ketones keep me satisfied. So that really allows me to get to the place that I want with metabolic health. So that's just one example of how food can change your hormones. Yes. The list goes on. You know, A lot of folks don't get enough protein or they don't yes. get the right type of protein. Yes. That can affect testosterone. It can affect growth hormone. The other thing that I see very commonly with food is that people don't get enough fat. Fat is the backbone of every sex hormone that you make. Yeah. It is derived from cholesterol. Wow. It does not raise your cholesterol to eat cholesterol, at least most of the time. So we've got to be eating in a way that really is talking to our hormones in a lovely um, in a lovely way that sets us up for the best metabolic health. There's other factors too, of course, like stress can get involved. It can accelerate the loss of testosterone which is so important for not just men, but women too. Yes. And it it can take other hormones offline. You know, a lot of women over 40 go through something called thyropause. Where their thyroid is slowing down, kind of like menopause, but uh-huh. affecting your thyroid. And it can be subtle. It can be, you know, your cholesterol starting to climb. Maybe you notice a little more swelling in your hands and feet, the hair loss again maybe you've got um, some constipation, like you're just not pooping every morning like you used to. So thyroplice is another really important factor here. And 70% of women, 70% of people with thyroid dysfunction don't know they have it because no one bothered to run the blood test to look. Uh,
1: First, I want to thank you for sharing. So honestly, about your experience, because I think other women are going to relate to that. And and I think that's um, important. And I appreciate that. I just, uh, when you're talking about all of the different scenarios, mine was, I guess, the low growth hormone. I think that might be (laughs) um, that I'm going through. Um, And people can pick up the book and go through the questionnaires and they're going to get a better understanding of maybe where their imbalances are. But let's say they're planning to meet with their GYN or their general practitioner, whoever they tend to go to, it can be overwhelming. But my sense is from what you're saying is that most of us probably have some hormonal imbalance going on. Is that fair to say?
0: Unfortunately? Yes. <laughs> so, you know, I, because I'm such a nerd, I track these things pretty carefully and I've got a list of every patient I've ever seen um, starting Uh, when I was first in practice in 1998. And I can tell you that less than 0.1% of my patients, men and women don't have hormone imbalances. So yes, there are some people like there's one woman (laughs) who lives in Marin County, who eats only organic, like organic food that she grows on her land. She's got very little stress. She's a meditation teacher. (laughs) She has like She is a perfect hormonal specimen. The rest of us are struggling.
1: Yes. So we're, you know, what should we ask our doctors? You know, if we're feeling off, we're feeling depressed or I, and I didn't know if I should have attributed it to COVID, but when we were sort of in the middle of it, like back in March, every time I got my menstrual cycle, I felt like my brain shut off at least by 50%. Yeah. And I talked to my doctor, like, I don't know if I'm Depressed because of COVID, and we've been in so much, or what's happening, but I don't feel myself. She actually recommended, and I don't know if you're a fan of it or not, but like a neuro magnesium, like a magnesium Mm -hmm, for the brain. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I did take it. It actually did help some, but um, you know, who knows, right? I mean, where it starts. So what do what do we ask our doctor? I mean she at least was open to saying, you know, let's try this and see. And because my menstrual cycle was regular, she's like, I don't think you're, you know, again,
0: we don't need to test the
1: (laughs) right. (laughs) We don't need to run the blood work, but but we should run the blood work, right? What should we ask for?
0: I do recommend running the blood work. So The questionnaires that are in the book are exactly the same questions that I ask my patients when I have an hour and a half session with them. So they are literally exactly the same. Oh, that's so cool. (laughs) So it's similar to coming to see me. You know, my wait list is ridiculous at this point. So it's much better to, I think, go through the questionnaire, see what hormones seem to be out of balance, and then to be directed about your your panel that you yes. request from the doctor. Yeah. So I would say at a minimum, I like to look at cortisol, the stress hormone, first thing yes. in the morning. If I get to you know, uh, go for a bonus, I would like to do something co- called a cortisol awakening response, which is a saliva test, where you look at your, your stress hormone, cortisol, first thing in the morning, 30 minutes later, 60 minutes later. I also like to look at it over the course of the day because a lot of women start to make more cortisol right before they go to bed. And it's hard to wind down. So cortisol thyroid panel, and that's not the mainstream panel of just a TSH thyroid stimulating hormone and free T4, but I like to look at free T3, reverse T3 thyroid antibodies, because it is the most common autoimmune disease that we have.
1: Can you say what that is? Thyroid antibodies? Is that, is that the test itself? Is that what you'd ask for?
0: Yeah. So there's two different blood tests that you can ask for. One is called thyroid peroxidase antibodies, TPO for short. The other is anti thyroglobulin antibodies. And what happens with a lot of patients is that their immune system starts to attack their thyroid and it can show up as these antibodies, which are kind of like the bullets that get shot at the thyroid. Hmm. So you can measure these in the blood. I can tell you a lot of women don't get this done. But I would recommend checking it at least once if yeah. you're having symptoms of imbalance. I also like to look at reverse T3, which blocks thyroid function. It can go up when you're stressed. And also, if you're restricting carbs too much,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I like to look at estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. There's a particular point in the cycle where it can be helpful to look at the peaks versus the lower levels. And, you know, I think. I want to go back to this point you made about your brain and kind of this 50% decrement that you <laughs> yeah. noticed. With yes. The
1: it of your it concerned me because my memory was off. Like I just felt a bit disconnected from my own body. It was very yeah. weird and uncomfortable. I knew I didn't feel like me, but I didn't know why.
0: So this happens to 80% of us Oh, over age 40. And <laughs> the name that we use for it, uh, the technical name, Yes. is cerebral hypometabolism. Hmm. The way I describe it to my patients is that there's this slowdown of the brain function that's happening in 80% of women over 40, and it's related to the mitochondria. Okay. So the mitochondria are like the power factory inside of your cells. And women, men don't do this, women after 40 start to notice these symptoms of their mitochondria not working the way that they once did. Yes. So mitochondria starts to falter. You may notice that uh, your memory is not what it used to be. You walk into a room, can't remember why. You open the, the drawer in the kitchen. You're not sure what you're looking for. Yes, You forget the name of someone that is an acquaintance. You forget you know, a word kind of mid-sentence, so you choose the second best word. So these are very common findings. We also know that the women who have the cerebral hypometabolism or brain slowdown also have other symptoms related to perimenopause. They're the ones who have the night sweats, the hot flashes, their periods getting closer together, maybe more anxiety as estrogen starts to shuffle the deck. Maybe they are having trouble with soothing themselves with anxiety. So these are, you know, the women who have the most symptoms are the ones who have this change in brain function. Now, I love that your doctor listened to you, she and at didn't. least had again, a we bonded. We
1: bonded because I of you. It. I love it <laughs> she probably was like, I was like, maybe she read that in one of Dr. Godfrey's books.
0: I'm gonna try it. <laughs> that's all I could think of. I did write about it in brain body diet because uh, you know, not all magnesium is treated the same, so neuromag magnesium three and eight seems yes. to be a little more effective in terms of brain function. yeah, but the other issue that's going on is. The way that the the cells in the brain are using glucose, that's what's starting to falter. So, what I like to do is a trial four weeks of the ketogenic diet because the brain can preferentially use ketones and get that mental acuity back. So, that's why I wrote this book, really, because I think women, especially over 40, need to have some other alternatives besides taking Neuromag. Sure. So, and like um, you said, the
1: food is the, the heart of this, right? I mean, what we're feeding ourselves, if we could balance that. Can you actually explain what the, the Gottfried protocol is? Because I think, you know, this is a perfect transition to that and why traditional keto diet isn't so great for women, which you talk
0: about in the book. Traditional keto, you know, I, I tried it for the first time about five years ago. So my husband and I went on a ketogenic diet together. I, you know, I had, I had all these keto refugees that were coming to my clinic who were saying, I went on keto with this male coworker. He lost weight. I didn't what's (laughs) up. And so I thought, well, let me try this myself. So I went on keto with my husband. Sure enough, he lost about 20 pounds and I initially had some success, but then I gained weight. And I was like, what's up? What what is going on? Is this yet another example of the testosterone advantage where men have more muscle mass? They have higher testosterone 10 to 20 times as much, and they have higher metabolic rate. And so they just do better kind of regardless of the diet. Is that what's going on or is it related to keto? Yeah, And I discovered that women really some women do fine with keto, but a lot of them struggle. So 45% of women on keto will have menstrual irregularity because it can change the control hormones. The ones that are made in the brain, like luteinizing hormone, especially if they're not getting enough calories. So calories matter. Hormones matter more, but calories do matter. The other thing that I saw was that on classic keto, which is 70% of calories from fat, 20% 20% of calories from protein, 10% of calories from carbs, was that it wasn't enough carbs for me. Yes. So 10% of my calories from carbs raised my cortisol. Yes. It raised my reverse T3. So it slowed down my thyroid function. Wow. It robbed me of serotonin. We've already talked about serotonin. So I wasn't sleeping well. Hmm. And I also realized, because I do precision medicine, I had a couple of genes that were making me more insulin resistant for wow. my cells were numb to insulin because of the amount of saturated fat I was eating. Wow. So I was going a little crazy with the bacon and the keto lasagna <laughs> and you know all the things. Yes, yay, bacon
1: re- every day. Yeah. Yay, right. no, no, no.
0: So we know that there's an issue with processed meat, um, especially when it comes to diabetes. That's from observational data. So, you know, uh, it's important to realize that um, correlation is not causation, Yes, but it was not the right fit for me. And as I dove into the literature, I realized 80% of the data on keto was in men. The diet was developed by a man Mm -hmm. and it wasn't adapted to women. So that's really what I wanted to do in this book. And I found that after I failed keto again, that I needed to really pay attention to my gut. I needed to get sufficient carbohydrates from vegetables, non-starchy vegetables to set up my detox pathways so that I could really burn fat and get it out of the body. Yes. So that means pooping every morning. It means getting those cruciferous vegetables that we all know we need, the broccoli, the cauliflower, the Brussels sprouts, the broccoli sprouts, the allium vegetables, like the garlic, leeks, and onions that really help you with making more glutathione to mop mm. up some of those toxins that we make on keto, Yes, as well as the methylating vegetables. So those are the, the dark green leafies that help us get rid of estrogen. We want to inactivate estrogen after we use it. You don't want it recirculating in the body like bad karma. Right. You want to make sure that you're, you use it and you lose it. You poop oh, it out and you pee it out. Okay. So that's the first part of the Godfrey protocol that you get these detox pathways open. You're pooping every morning. Second pillar is nutritional ketosis. It sometimes can take people up to a week to kind of get the hang of the macro nutrients. So I yes. like to give people time and I really like to emphasize that uh, this is a quote, I think from Truman imperfect action, Trump's perfect inaction. Like it's yes. so much better to, step into it, even if you make some mistakes at the beginning, it's okay. Like that's life, that's the human condition. And then to layer in intermittent fasting because that allows you to consume more carbohydrates. So my recommendation is somewhere around 20 to 25 net carbs per day. And then after the four weeks of the Gottfried free Protocol, you slowly bring carbs back about five grams a day to see how your body responds to it. And then we can define your carb limit, your carb threshold, which can change over time. So when I first started this back in uh, 2016, my carb threshold was, you know, I could tolerate about 30 to 40 grams a day. That was it. Yes. Now I can tolerate a lot more without my blood sugar rising, without any problems to my insulin. I can consume somewhere around 50 to 75 grams per day. So it can change over time. Wow. And we want to be thinking about this rather than just oh, you know, let me just cut out carbs completely today and eat nothing but tan things right. <laughs> which don't have enough fiber to right. feed your gut microbiome. Right. It's kind of
1: sad I think especially in the United States I think we're guilty of not knowing how to eat. So in different cultures there's sort of a way to eat that's been passed along from generations and Western way, when it kind of makes its way, I think kind of ruins it, right? Because you even talked about, I think in the beginning, like the Mediterranean diet or something is sort of a nice foundation. Or oh, no, you were to also talking plant based being, you know, healthy. It's like a good foundation. But I think a lot of us don't know where to go. And that's why this is so fantastic because it is a four week plan. And then you can start listening. It's actually an invitation to listen to your body, to pay attention to what feels good. I know if I do solely protein without a little bit
0: of carb. I'm starving. Yes. I'm hungry. And I'm like, well, Well, that's weird. Well, the other thing that excess protein does is that it can convert into glucose. Ah. So we all think, oh, I need more protein. It's going to help me with muscle mass, especially as I get older, but we've really got to get that dose right. So the diet that's in this book, and I hesitate to even say the word diet, it sort of gets stuck in my mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The food plan that's in this book is moderate protein. Now, certainly elite athletes need more protein, but generally we need enough protein to preserve your muscle mass over time. And that's something that I really encourage people to track. So not just the hormone panel from your doctor, but also track your body fat, your body, your lean body mass, so that, you know, it's maintained over time or maybe even growing. Hmm. So yeah, you need some carbs, but if I eat too much protein, it raises my glucose through this process of gluconeogenesis. So we want to dial this in. You also mentioned the Mediterranean diet, certainly the most proven diet that we have on the planet. But once again, just like 100% plant-based, if I do a Mediterranean diet, I gain weight. See, And part of it, Yeah. Well, there's a lot of reasons. Part of it is that, okay, I'm not from Italy or Greece. You know, my genetics Genetics. are like, I'm from Poland and Ireland and Africa. And so my genetics don't fit with the Mediterranean diet. And there's certain foods like beans, legumes that are uh, very common in the Mediterranean diet that spike my glucose like crazy. Apples, bananas, Sweet potatoes—they spike my glucose, so they lead to this metabolic dysfunction. Mm. And I don't want anything to do with that because I don't fit into the clothes in my closet if I eat too much of those things. So I have to do this adapted Mediterranean diet, where I can play with my carb limit, as I show folks to do after four weeks. But I also have to be careful about some of these foods that my microbiome react to depending on my stress levels, depending on what's going on with the bacteria and the other microbes in my gut and their DNA, I have to be really careful about what I eat. So for folks who have tried a Mediterranean diet and they just found that it's not quite right, like they yes. find that the the weight is climbing or their belly fat is increasing, yes. I really encourage those folks to consider doing something like a 4-week ketogenic pulse. Right. So it's not a diet for the rest of your life. It is And of one experiment where you serve as your own control and see if it's a good fit for you.
1: And then you can continue,
0: like you said, and then play with the carb ratio. You can play with the carb ratio. I talk uh, through how to bring those carbs back specifically. And then, you know, what a lot of people end up with is a very personalized, lower carbohydrate, but not low carb Mediterranean diet where they come in and out of ketosis, which I think is actually the best for us rather than to just stay in ketosis. Yes. I think it's good to, after four weeks, to come in and out of it because that's what our DNA evolved to do. Yeah. And that's really, it's almost like a genetic loophole that helps us with (laughs) metabolic health.
1: Yes. Can I ask, you mentioned the like extra belly fat. What's that about when we hit a certain age? Can you just explain what's going on there? And can, I mean- you're, you look like you're in fantastic shape. I mean, I'm wondering if you feel better now than you did when you were
0: 35 going through all that stuff. No question. I mean, I, I would say my energy is better. My sleep is better. I mean, I did have a kid that was like three years old when I was 35, but so much is better. Sex yes. drive, relationships, um, my weight has been stable for three years since I yes. developed this protocol, whereas it would go up and down, you know, every time I had my period, it would go up like five pounds. Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. So there's a couple things that are going on. One is just in general, like, even if you're not in perimenopause yet, if you're someone who has a lot to do in the world and you have high cortisol, high perceived stress, that's going to make you preferentially deposit fat at your waist. Okay. So uh, the fat at your waist has four times the cortisol receptors as fat elsewhere. So you are going to build it up kind of at a quadrupled rate compared to uh, the fat you have on your arms, legs, et cetera. The other issue is that, and this is from that chapter, life is totally unfair, So women, as they go through their forties, start to redistribute their fat.
1: Completely. Because you can be the same weight on the scale, but your clothes are not fitting at all. And you think, what's happening? I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that's the perfect, yeah, that's how I see it in my body.
0: That's exactly it. So I hear that every day in my practice. Yeah. You know, it used to be that, All the fat was deposited at the breasts and the hips and the buttocks, and now it goes right to the waist. And that is (laughs) insulin and estrogen kind of starting to work against you, making you more like a man. So women catch up to men in terms of uh, cardiometabolic disease somewhere between 50 and 55. Now, it's not like that suddenly happens at 50. It's been happening silently for years before that. The other thing that occurs is growth hormone changes and it changes quite precipitously for women. So growth hormone, you know, it's an intuitive name. It's it's responsible for the growth and repair of your body, your muscles, your bones, your the cells in your body. It's one of those anabolic hormones that you mostly make at night. Women make more than men until menopause. And then mm-hmm. at menopause, we make much much less, and growth hormone is part of this whole story with glucose, insulin, and belly fat. So another piece that changes is testosterone declines. We've talked about that already. It can start to decline in your twenties, more refined carbs, more eating out, more stress can make it accelerate in terms of how it drops. And as your muscle mass drops, what we know over time is that starting around age 40, you will gain about five pounds of fat and lose about five pounds of muscle every decade, unless you're specifically doing something about it. Yes. Which is what I want our listeners to do. Like yes. take this on. don't don't just be there silently like a victim, letting this passively happen. Yes. Like grab those reins, and let's let's get these hormones to be the wind at your back again, so that you can really accomplish your mission in this world. I love
1: what you just said, and actually, I had a note um, that it seems to me that the heart of your work is really about empowering women to own their health. Be empowered with the knowledge, take control, just like what you said, so that we can have the best life possible that's available to us to really be in charge of that. And that's why I so
0: appreciate this. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. You know, I, I think, um, a lot of people call me a hormone expert and I feel like, yeah, you know, I'm into hormones, but hormones are really just the portal. It's just a, it's just the way in for some folks. And it's much more about changing conversations. And to realize that the way medicine is practiced right now, if you're someone who's got that 10-minute appointment with your primary care doctor once a year, yeah. and you're outsourcing your health to that 10-minute appointment, yeah. that is not serving you. No. The more that you can say, okay, you know, 99% of the time, my health is what I'm doing every day. The decisions I make about food, about sleep, what time I go to bed, the decisions I make about You know my goals and what I want to do with my career, what I want to do with my family, how I'm parenting, how I'm, uh, you know, taking care of my parents that are getting older. All of those decisions need to have hormonal support, and need to have your health to really be at the center. Yes, in some ways, it is your greatest wealth. I think Emerson said that. Like it's, I always think of Steve Jobs. You know, we can debate his personality quirks and you know some of his other issues, but yes. He did not have health. He had tremendous wealth. Yes, and he died prematurely. And so, to me, your retirement account, like your four hundred one k, is your health. Yes, it's your hormones. It's your um, the sleep, which is as close to a panacea as we have when it comes to metabolic health. Yes, and I want people to really be owning this and not be like, "Oh, I don't know what my fasting glucose is. I think my doctor checked it six months ago, but I have no idea." like that's one thing I do at dinner parties. I'm so much fun. I'm like, Hey, what's your fasting glucose? My daughters are like, mom, really? Like, couldn't you just stop this one party? Oh,
1: I would love to hang out with you at a party. I would just, I'm such a curious person. I I'd love that you do that. And actually it's funny. Cause I watch you on Instagram and I watch you with the glucose monitor and I'm like, I'm not ready for that. I did get an aura <laughs> ring. I don't know what oh, you there think of go. these. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm a fan. Oh, okay. You're a fan. Um, so uh, I absolutely. When I turned 50 this year, I thought, am I as vibrant and healthy and strong as I want to be? And that is the heart of it. I think you write that literally on page 11. Like, this is the essence of what you're trying to do. I want anyone to know, regardless of their body type, they can be healthy and strong and feel energized. Like this is the heart of it. And that's why I was like, oh my goodness, I'm so grateful you're here today to talk about this. This book was going to join the collection of your other two anyway, because it does empower us. but we need to own it. And we need to be having more of these conversations. I think my listeners would love to know, just share with us any daily routines or habits that you do that we can start playing with. I mean, you said you do have the aura ring. I don't know about the glucose monitor yet. I'm not quite there yet. I don't know. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I, I'll just tell you what I did this morning. So- Right now, it's 10.53 uh, a.m. here at Pacific Time. So I got up this morning. First thing I do is actually check my glucose. Ah, you're body. wearing it. Okay. Yeah. So I like to look at my fasting glucose because I can tell, especially during this book launch, how much stress I'm under. Yeah. So the, the glucose, ideally, fasting should be about 70 to 85 Above that, you're starting to have some issues with that bouncer. The insulin's not working the way that it should be. Yes. And I used to have pre diabetes. I used to have a fasting glucose in my 30s. You know, when I left that doctor's office and I was like, screw this. And I went and checked my hormones. My fasting glucose was 105, my insulin was elevated. So I knew I had to take on my metabolic health. And mm. it's important to know it's not related to thinness. Right. So there's lots of people right. who yes. are thin. Yes. But they're not metabolically healthy. And similarly, yeah. there's people who are overweight, even obese, who are metabolically healthy. I yeah, mean, that's certainly, important. certainly metabolic health becomes less likely the more that you're overweight yes. and obese. But I think it's important to clarify that. Yes. So I check my glucose. I get up in the morning and I have, before I get up, I like to affirm something. I like to tune mm. into, okay, what's the apex today? the apex of my day was hanging out with you, Michelle. Oh, that's just... So I like to really set an intention with yeah. that to show up with my best self. Yes. And then I, I drink a lot of water. So I drink um, an electrolyte combination that I found really works for me. So I drink about 24 ounces of filtered water together with about half a lemon and about a quarter of a teaspoon of Himalayan sea salt. Mm. So that's my own, electrolyte mix. I drink that. I take a couple of supplements and then it's time for mindset. So I do some sort of objective practice of what's going on in my mind and body. Hmm. So yesterday it was body scan. Today it was potato breathing, which helps with breathing efficiency. Yes, I'm about to start um, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And then I exercise because that's the only time I can do it. So today... I did Peloton, um, I did a strength training thing for 20 minutes, and then I did a 30-minute power zone training ride. I just love to start my day that way. I'm continuing the mind-body work while I'm doing that. And then uh, I'll have to do another strength training at some point today. And then I got ready for patient care. So I've got patients. I also greeted my husband who gets up early and likes to trade. And then my daughter, sixteen year old, still at home. So I like to still shine my love lights on her. Mm. I've only got a couple of years left of being yes. able to do that every single morning, like to really tune into what's going on for her, anything we need to address, any niggly stuff. Stuff. What's the apex of her day? Um, so I try to, you know, model this and pass it down. Yeah. That's, those are really the key things. I mean, I have a family dinner every single night. It's gotten earlier and earlier. Like last night, it was four p.m. <laughs> <laughs> For my wedding anniversary, we went oh, out at four p.m. Oh. Yeah. So those are some basics in terms of daily habits. Those are great, and
1: something somebody can think about, even if they just start with the water, and then you know, incorporate maybe some of the meditation, the exercise, the the breathing. Um, yeah, and a quick don't do. So yes, quick don't do. Yeah. don't do.
0: So when I was in my 30s and I was such a hot hormonal mess, <laughs> I used to I used to check email every single morning. Like that's how I started my day. Yeah. And one of my teachers said this beautiful thing. He said, uh, "Your email inbox is this convenient organizing system for other people's agenda." Yes, And I really appreciate that. So when you start to take on the agenda of everyone else, instead of really setting your intention for the day, it can get confusing. Like your autonomy is not quite there. Your beneficence is not quite there. Whereas we can have that initial period, even if it's five or 10 minutes, when it's focused more on you yes. showing up as your most exquisite self, yes, being in this exquisite moment, I think it changes everything.
1: And you're such a beautiful role model of that. I mean, you're just radiant just from the second you jumped on the Zoom. I was like, you are exactly how I feel you through all the work that you do, through your writing, through your online presence, and now in this moment. And I'm so, so grateful for your time today and everything that you shared. Um, Where can people pick up the book, learn more about you? You said there's a wait list, sadly, for your practice. But if somebody wanted to learn more, just give me um, a few places we can direct people.
0: Thank you for that. And you are such a shining star in the world. I just love listening to your podcast. So I want to I want to send the love back to you. Uh, so you. the best place to go is com. That's where you can learn more about the book. You can get some bonus gifts that can help you go deeper, including a roadmap and optimal lab ranges, a few things like that. When you yes. buy the book and submit the receipt, you can get the book anywhere books are sold. We were sold out for a few weeks on Amazon. It's finally back on, in stock. And um, my practice is at Thomas Jefferson University, Marcus Institute of Integrative Health. And that's where you can learn more about what I do. Thank you.
1: So, so good to be with you today. I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so much, Dr. Godfrey.
0: My pleasure, Michelle. Call me Sarah. So good to be with
1: you. Oh, my goodness.
0: Okay. Thank you, Sarah.